If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the unspeakable gift of your one and only unique son, Jesus. We would have no hope in the world if it was not for him. Lord, thinking about that makes us realize that as proud human beings who so often err, that if there's anything we have forgotten to bring before your presence this morning, we ask that you would pardon us. We desire, like those early disciples, Lord, to live under the influence of your spirit. So fill us. Open our hearts and minds like you did for Lydia, that we may receive the things that are said to understand your word this morning. Lord, we desire to see how wonderful you are. We desire to worship you and to honor you with our lives. Would you take the next few moments that we spend together in your word and bring light to our lives that we may walk in it. Help us to appreciate the great love that you have shown to us. We ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So we find ourselves at a point in which COVID has collectively troubled our lives yet once again. There, of course, has been a recent surge in the amount of new cases that has caused our state governor, Governor Wolf, to issue new statewide restrictions. It appears to be that his hope is to slow the spread of the virus as we approach the Christmas and New Year's holidays, especially in light of numbers being reported this past Friday that reached over 12,000 
uh, in the number of new cases. At the same time, the FDA on Friday approved uh, the new Pfizer vaccine, and some see it as the hope of salvation on the horizon. Personally, for me, COVID has been a reminder of how vulnerable we are to the dangers uh, in this life. Earlier this year, I had a cousin who had spent her life uh, working as an RN, and now in her retired years, uh, she contracted COVID, which ultimately led to her death. Just this week, uh, two very close family members of mine, as I've been on phone calls all week and texting with family members, were hospitalized uh, due to COVID. Uh, one is barely clinging to life, and today his family has been asked to come to the hospital. The second uh, is stabilized, but in the hospital now with COVID-related symptoms. And all this has done is remind me that there are things in this life that we're susceptible to, various threats. Sometimes they're physical, sometimes they're mental, sometimes they're emotional, sometimes they're financial, sometimes they're relational, but we're susceptible to these dangers. And what often happens when we encounter these types of dangers in the life, what our world normally does is seek to find ways to save us. And thus we have new mitigation efforts or vaccines. Because the normal behavior for humans is that when we encounter something that threatens us, uh, that calls for deliverance, we seek to save ourselves. While the the world is in the business of seeking to find deliverance for itself, the Christmas story comes to us and reminds us there is an ultimate Savior that those who follow God should look to, and that is to look to, to Jesus. So let's talk about salvation today. What exactly is salvation? Well, salvation, uh, nice and crystally defined, is the act or state of deliverance from harm or peril, whether that danger be physical or spiritual, temporal or eternal. One author stated he can refer to deliverance from disease, as in Isaiah 38, 20, from trouble of various kinds, such as Jeremiah 37, or enemies, 2 Samuel 3, 18, and Psalm 44, 7. But what ends up shaping the concept of salvation for the Israelites in the Old Testament is one major event. It is what God does for them when the Israelites are trapped between water and an army that's hunting them down. And God does something that he's not done in history before, only one other time afterwards, where he parts the waters and allows the people to escape certain death, certain death, by walking across on dry land and using the waters to come back and wash away their enemies. And that one event becomes the defining moment of what salvation will mean to the people of Israel. And so Moses, in his writing, summed it up in Exodus 14 this way, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. And that would become the definition by which they interpreted, sing about, reflected on, and how they understood what salvation meant when God brought it. 
But that definition, of course, would change over time. In the Old Testament, we see that the main focus of salvation is on the very physical nature of life. It is rescue from some danger in this present life, be that disease or some other thing. But when we get to the New Testament, things have changed and made a dramatic shift to salvation that points more towards the afterlife. And the focus is on the forgiveness of sins and on eternal life. And as we see that development of time, I think that one writer sums it up best that says, in light of looking at the whole of Scripture, that to know God is to know him as a saving God. And in the Christmas story, we see both acts of salvation by God. Those ones that are, are, are of a temporal nature as well as those ones that relate to eternal things. But let's start off with the temporal dangers that God saves us from and the two examples that Matthew gives us of how God might save us from various temporal dangers. This not, of course, being exhaustive, but just an indication. So the Gospel writer Matthew gives us this first example, and the first thing that he does is show us how God is able to rescue us from a relational danger by saving a relationship. Let's return to the text and read what we read earlier, and I'll show that to you by pointing out a few things. Back to chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not till she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let me mention a few observations here from the text that gets to the point that I want to make. As we look at the text, we'll notice that first Mary is betrothed, that she is in a marital relationship, sort of like engagement, but far more serious because you were already considered married, although you had not yet had the marriage ceremony. And in order to get out of that, you would actually have to get a divorce. Mary ends up mysteriously pregnant. Now, for those of us who are readers of the Bible, we are given information that Joseph did not have at that time. We know that this is from the Holy Spirit or from God. Joseph did not have that knowledge. So the only logical conclusion that he could have is that, he is, that Mary has been living with her parents. Uh, he has not yet had to, a chance to interact with her in a husbandly way. And she has ended up showing signs of pregnancy. The only conclusion could be that Mary had been unfaithful. When you look at verse 19 in your text, in your Bible, you'll notice the solution that Joseph had come to or resolved in his mind. How does he deal with this situation of unfaithfulness on the part of Mary? The answer, divorce. When we consider the culture of that time and what would have happened to Mary in light of this, it would have most likely put her in an extremely 
disadvantaged position in society as a single mother with a child. It's into the midst of that situation where Joseph has already made the decision that the direction he wants to move in is divorce that God intervenes through a divine communication by means of an angel, where the angel appears to Joseph in a dream and instructs him to move in a different direction. We notice when we get to verse 24 that Joseph does take a different action. Instead of his planned action of divorce, he actually marries Mary and goes on to raise a family with her. Why? Because God ultimately changes Joseph's mind by changing his perspective about the relationship that he has with Mary. And when Joseph thought differently about his relationship with Mary, the way he acted toward her changed as well. And thus what we see as a result is that God saves Mary's marriage. And God still saves relationships today in a similar way. God intervenes in various ways to save relationships. I remember a number of years ago when I was at my former church, and I remember as a single man sitting in the pew, as you are sitting today, and, and there was a family that was brought up on stage who had been married for a, a number of years. I think it was over 20 years they had been married. But they talked about their relationship to encourage people to get involved in marriage counseling, and they were sharing their personal testimony. And they gave some very detailed information about what was happening in their relationship and that how over the years various things had got into the relationship that led to the deterioration such that their attitudes towards one another became very hostile and ultimately it led them to be on the path of divorce. And as they were approaching this decision of, of getting divorced because their hearts had been hardened, they had been challenged by some others to seek the Lord. And so they decided because they're supposed to, were supposedly both believers and decided, okay, we can at least give this a try. It won't hurt anything. So they began to seek the Lord and pray and then get involved in marriage counseling. And it was something unexpected happened in that process, which was God began to show them themselves, and as they began to see themselves, they began to have a different perspective on their marriage relationship, which called them to change in the way they related to, to one another, which ultimately changed their relationship and saved their marriage. And that's why now they were able to be on the stage, be able to encourage others that God could step into a relationship that seemed hopeless and save that relationship. What I, what I heard about many years ago, I have had the chance to witness with my own eyes here at Living Water as I have watched God step into what seemed to be dire circumstances and bring families back from the brink of death. That is, death to a relationship. And so if you're here today and somewhere in your mind or you're watching online and your marriage is struggling, I would say look to God as your Savior. And what the Lord is willing to do if you will allow him to work in your relationship is he's willing to first of all help you to recognize the sin in your own life and what you've done that has contributed to the deterioration of your relationship. And if you're willing to allow the Lord to show you that and allow him to bring about and give to you that gift of repentance and turn from the way you've been related to one another and be willing to extend forgiveness and seek the help of others, God will work through those means to rescue and save your relationship because God is able to save relationships. There's a second thing in the text which Matthew shows us an example of how God rescues temporally, and that's found in chapter 2 of the Christmas story. We find it here at chapter 2, two starting at verse 13. The text reads, 
Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So we see the Magi, these foreigners who have come from a distant land, to come to worship this newborn king of Israel. Of course, this is a threat to Herod, and so once they have gone to worship, they ultimately leave a different way because they have been warned by God in a dream not to go back to Herod, who has nefarious motives towards the child. And when uh, Herod realizes what's going on, he enacts a plan to deal with this threat to his power, and as a result, God intervenes and warns Joseph about what is happening and what the intentions are and tells him, here's what I want you to do. I want you to move out and go to Egypt and stay there until I tell you to come back. And Joseph, being an obedient Jew, does exactly what the angel instructs as the messenger of God, and ultimately the life of the child is saved. And herein we are reminded that God is able to intervene in human history as he sees fit, and whenever he desires and wills to save the lives of his people from various threats of life, danger in this world. This is one of the ways that he can intervene in human history to deal with temporal dangers. We're reminded of this when we see in the book of Acts, when we come to Peter, and Herod had already killed uh, James, the brother of John, and he thought it'd be a nice thing to do this again because the people seemed pleased with this idea of killing off Jesus' apostles and had thrown Peter into prison, but God intervened and sent an angel and freed him from prison. Paul, in the later part of Acts chapter 27, we find that he's on a ship, on his way to Rome, to represent Christ, to testify about what God had done in Christ. And on the, on the means, he had warned the ship not to depart because of the potential of the danger of storm, but they decided to sail on anyway. And it was in that storm that God showed up to rescue not only Paul, but all of those who were with him. Let me remind you by reading the text to you, what Paul says to the men on the journey as they were in the midst of the storm. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, afraid Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who will sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must return, run aground on some island. And as we continue to read the book of Acts, we discover that it's exactly as God had said. All the lives of the men who were on the ship were saved. And God has a way of intervening in history to rescue us from physical danger. So one story that illustrates this in a modern way happened back in 2013, right on the coast of Nigeria. About 4.30 in the morning, three tugboats were pulling in an oil freighter when once Something happened to one of the tugboats that suddenly caused it to sink 100 feet, and the 12-man crew were still on board. The cook, uh, Mr. Harrison Okane, was asleep. It's 4.30 in the morning. He was sleeping as his shift to sleep, and the boat went down. It sank 100 feet down into the Atlantic Ocean until it touched bottom and it turned over. The way that he was awakened was because as the ship was sinking, as it turned over, uh, he was thrown out of his bunk, and of course he realized that there was something wrong. 
uh, he began to then make his way in the dark through the icy waters to find a space to find air. And he found a cabin that had about a four-foot pocket of air. And there he tried to make a makeshift place where he could stay by piling up some mattresses and, and hoping that he could survive. Uh, he, he was realistic and knew that most likely the chances of his survival was slim to none. And it was in that moment, because as a follower of Jesus Christ being in this dire situation, that he did what most of us do as believers. We turn to the Lord and seek him in prayer. And he began to recall to his mind various psalms. He actually said, these are some of the things that he prayed. He prayed, oh God, by your name, save me. He remembered the psalm that said, the Lord sustains my life. He said to the reporters, I started calling on the name of God, reminiscing on the verses I read before I slept. Because that night before he had gone to sleep, he had read from Psalm 54 to Psalm 92 because his wife had sent him those verses for him to read and meditate on that night in his bed, not knowing that he would need those verses to survive. And for the next 72 hours, he would spend alone in the dark, right above the icy waters, submerged beneath the waters of the Atlantic Ocean, wondering, praying, and crying out to God that God would rescue him from this dire situation. As I was reading this story, I was like, here's a modern-day example of Jonah's experience. This brother was lost in the depths of the sea, and what did he do? The same thing Jonah did. He called out to the Lord, the only one who could hear him in that situation. As the hours began to pass, and I cannot imagine what it must have been like to be down at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, submerged with icy water, and, then to, and to know that no one would know where you were at, with no way out, as most likely the other 11 men had already drowned in your crew, and hoping against hope that God would answer. So after that 72 hours of the time ticked by, most likely very slowly for him, probably felt like an eternity. Something happened. He began to hear the sounds of a rescue crew. And hope emerged. He grabbed the hammer and began to build, beat against the steel to let them know that he was still there and still alive. And so the Dutch divers came in and they were surprised to find as they were pulling out bodies that there was a hand that reached out to grab their hand. He went on to say to the reporters after the event, the rest of my life is not enough to thank God for this wonder. It is incredible. He went on to tell them that he said he will always view this as a, an event where there was divine deliverance, that the Lord had heard his prayer and answered him and saved his life. There are some times, brothers and sisters, where we face dire circumstances where God will intervene in human history and rescue his people from physical danger because what the Christmas story reminds us is that God is still the ultimate savior. Not only does God save us from triple dangers, but God rescues us from that which is far more important, which is eternal danger. God rescues us from the consequences of our sins. Why is it so important? I was reflecting on this, and why is it eternal danger uh, far more important than the things that we often want to be rescued from life? I thought back about Lazarus and Jairus' daughters who had experienced the, the miracle-working power of Jesus that had called them back from the dead. And there was still a reality that was still true about each one of them. Jairus' daughter and Lazarus, although they had been miraculously rescued from the grips of death, they went on perhaps to live their lives, perhaps to have children and raise families, but ultimately 
they died again. And that's why it is important for us to be rescued from eternal danger because sin still bears upon our lives no matter how many times we're rescued from the dangers that we see in this life. And we see how God rescues from eternal danger in one verse, Matthew 1, 21. Let's look back at that verse. The text reads, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. There are four things I want to point out to you from this verse that points to God saving us from eternal danger. There is the name of the child. There is the act that he will do. There, is, there are the recipients who receive this and then last but, last but not least there is the danger itself or that which is the source of danger. Let's start off with the name of the child. The angel commands Joseph, and this is a command. He's not giving him a suggestion. He's telling him what to do, that he is to name the child Jesus. Now, this, of course, is the Greek form, which is in the Koine Greek of the day, but he's drawing upon a Hebrew name, which is actually the name Joshua. Now, there's two forms of the name Joshua. There's the longer form and the shorter form. In the longer form, the name actually means Yahweh is salvation. Or the shorter form means Yahweh saves. Because this child, that's exactly what he's going to do. He is Yahweh's salvation or Yahweh saving. He is going to bring about what the prophets had hoped for, which was this end time salvation where God would rescue Israel and deal with the very problem of sin that kept getting them into the situations of why they needed temporal deliverance. And so Jesus is going to be the means by which that's going to happen. And the angel does something with Joseph that the angel did not do with Mary. He explains the purpose behind Jesus' name, which leads us to the other three things. So not only does he tell us his name, which means Yahweh is salvation, this is the means by which Yahweh is going to save. Oh, but he also tells us what action he's going to take. Notice what the text says next in the line that Yahweh saves, will save. That is the action he's going to take. Let me remind you of the definition I shared with you earlier. Salvation is the act or state of deliverance from harm or peril, whether that danger be physical or spiritual, whether it's temporal or eternal. Jesus will deliver from harm or peril. Now, in the verse, the angel does not tell us how this is going to play out. No, the writer Matthew says you're going to have to read the rest of my gospel if you're going to discover how that's going to play out. And so as readers of the gospel, as we continue to work our way through Matthew's gospel, we discover as Jesus begins to say things in his ministry of how this is going to play out. We run into a couple of those before the events happen. One happens as Jesus is dealing with his disciples who are struggling with issues of pride, and he gives them a lesson on servant leadership. And it's at the end of that that he indicates the example about what he's going to do and how he's going to say This is what he said. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we're hinted here of what Jesus is going to do to save. It's going to be in the buying back from slavery by giving of his life. He goes on to reiterate this at the very last meal, which the disciples at that time did not know was going to be their last meal with Jesus. 
But he said something as he takes the, an ancient tradition that had been followed by Israel to remember those events of the Exodus that God had passed down, and he reinterprets them in light of what he's going to do because he's going to bring about a new Exodus. And this is what he said, and he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whatever Jesus is going to do in the giving of his life, it's going to be for taking care of the sins of others. And so we take these two verses together, and what we walk away with is Jesus that's the known ultimately he models as he does it in chapter 27 that Matthew records is that he gives his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of others. And we're told in the verse next, what is next is the recipients of this salvation, of these saving acts of Jesus' delivering from harm or peril. The text tells us he will deliver his people. Now the word in the text that Matthew uses in the Greek and as most likely Joseph would have understood, it points in one direction. It's pointing to the people and descendants of Jacob, that is, the nation of Israel, that Jesus had come to save Israel. Now, if you're not a biological descendant like me of Jacob's family, that ought to be of concern. Because what the text is saying is that Jesus has come to save the biological descendants of Jacob's family. And if I'm not one of those, then God's saving act were not for me. And that ought to cause me concern because that would leave me without hope in the world. But what Matthew does is he expands it of who will be included in the people and redefines what they understood. We see this in one of the actions when Jesus encounters a Gentile soldier who expresses great faith in him. And he then expands who's going to be a part of his people. This is what happens after that interaction. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of tears. So Jesus gives us a picture of ultimately what's going to happen where people, that is, people from the nations, will come and be a part of God's kingdom while the sons of the kingdom, those who are of the descendant of Jacob, because of lack of faith, will be thrown out. So he expands who it is, the people, because he becomes the new defining barrier for who's in with God and who's out. Ultimately, we see this play out as the resurrected Jesus gives the great commission to go for his disciples into the entirety of the world and preach the good news about him so that people from all nations might have the opportunity to be his disciples. Finally, we see in the verse, the fourth thing is, what causes the danger that's so dire that has eternal consequences? He says it at the very end, it's their sin. Now, what we have in mind when it comes to sin, let me give you a succinct definition because we can say a variety of things. It's any human activity that is against God's will. Any human activity that is against God's will. In the Old Testament, it oftentimes refers to various external human actions, like what we see in the Ten Commandments, adultery, murder, 
you know, extorting people, doing bad stuff, right, that we would consider not good, those type of things. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus expanded that definition beyond just the external actions to the internal thoughts and intentions of human beings. It says, even there, the law of God extends to those parts. Sometimes sin is intentional or accidental. accidental. Uh, we see that in Luke 20, 23 and verse 34 and Acts 17 and 30. Sometimes it is by things that we do that we commit acts. We call it commission, such as in Matthew 15, 19 or James 1, 5. And sometimes we commit sin by failing to do what we know is right, that we ought to do, and we choose not to do it. James 4, 17. And when we look throughout the Bible, we realize that sin has a lot of negative consequences. I don't want to focus on all those. I want to focus on one. The main negative consequence of sin. And God sums it up to himself through the prophet Ezekiel when he talks about this. And God says that, Behold, all souls are mine, the souls of the Father, as well as the Son of the Soul. The soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. That's it. That's the eternal danger. Sin leads to death. Now, it might be just bad enough to have physical death, but there's more to the story than that. Jesus reminds us of that as he is warning his disciples about where to have the proper placing of, of fear. And he says this to them. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. What Jesus does is allude to the fact by making the statement that after one perishes physically, life continues. That's the implication of what he's saying. That the consciousness of the person, the soul, goes on. What he says is that humans do have some power over our lives. There's some bad things they can do to us. They can even take our physical lives. But that's where their power stops. Your life continues. And when your life goes on, there's nothing more that humans can do to you. That's all, is take your physical life. But God, not so. Not only can he take your physical life, but that consciousness that, that continues on after death, God can reach in and take control of that and put that entity into hell. Right? And so then you can experience what ultimately we refer to as the second death. And that is ultimately what sin will bring about in the lives of those who don't have their sins taken care of. And so what we see in the text is what the, the, the angel says, what Jesus has come to deliver from, that, that our sins have brought about eternal danger to us, not only in this life, but in the life to come after death. But that's by giving up his life is by means by which he rescues us from that danger. Paul put it this way, for those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul says, ultimately, those who have been saved by Jesus don't have to fear what happens after death because Jesus will give them life. See, it's out of great love that God sent his one unique son into the world because God's intentions was to rescue humanity from the harm and peril that we justly deserve because we've earned it 
by the sins we've committed. That's why the text reminds us in this Christmas season that God is still Savior. Many hundred years before the Isaiah, the song Isaiah wrote a beautiful song, which I want to read to you in its entirety. It's called one of the servant songs of Isaiah. And he records about Israel. Now, in that day and time, they would have thought about this as Israel collectively and interpreted these things metaphorically. But, but after reviewing the life of Jesus, when we look back on this song, we see how it fit his life in a very literal way. So I want to share that with you. It sums up what Jesus has done. But think about it. This is written hundreds of years before he would ever live his earthly life. And here's what the song of Isaiah said. I'll be reading from the New English translation. Look, my servant will succeed. He will be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted just as many were horrified by the sight of you. He was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred, he no longer looked human. So now he will startle many nations. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation, for they will witness something unannounced to them. They will understand something they had not heard about. Who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of a parched soil. He had no stately form of majesty that, we might, that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and was considered, and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted our illnesses. He carried our pain. And he, even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done, he was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path, but the Lord called the sin of, of, of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before its, her shears, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living because of the rebellion of his own people he was wounded. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deed, nor had he spoken deceitfully. Though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see his descendants and enjoy long life. And the purposes will be, and the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. So I will assign him a portion with the multitude. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful, because he, will, he willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels. That is a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us. Now, one of the mysteries of the text, of course, is we see as the servant 
gives us life, how is it that he appears alive again to enjoy his descendants and enjoy long life? And we now have the answer historically as we reflect on the life of Jesus. It was because God raised him from the dead on the third day. And Jesus becomes for us the model of the new creation as the new creation, the new age, breaks in with his resurrection. And we see the first of the new creation in his glorified body, that which will follow for us in the time to come when he returns. That's what this salvation that God offers is about. Now, there's something else about the salvation that I want to make clear. This salvation does not promise material prosperity or worldly success. Acts 3, 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 10. Nor does it promise that we will have physical health or well-being, though at times God does grant those things in life. It does not mean that we will be delivered every time from physical hardship or danger, 1 Corinthians 4, 9-13, and 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28. And it does not mean that we will not experience tragic events in this life. What it does mean is that we will be rescued from that which is ultimately plaguing and has plagued humanity from the garden, that which holds the greatest threat to us, which is the eternal danger that comes as a consequence of our sin. Well, if you're here today and you're asking, how might I partake of what God is offering through Jesus? The biblical answer is two words, repentance and faith. Let me define those for you. Repentance has to do with a change of attitude toward God and toward Jesus that prompts a change in conduct in your life. Particularly is when we confess our sin and repudiation of sin. We take a different attitude towards it, and we turn to faith in Christ. Here, of course, faith is directed not only toward God, but ultimately towards Jesus. And it's not that there's two objects of faith. There's only one object of faith. That when you place faith in Jesus, you are placing faith in God. But here, faith, biblical faith, is more comprehensive than simply a mental assent to agreeing with the information that you hear in the gospel. Even demons believe that. But it's once one believes that this is the truth, they act on that by committing their self and life to the one of whom the message is about. They commit themselves to Jesus. That is biblical faith. Now you may be saying, I've already received that gift. If you have received that gift and you're reflecting on that and that you've been rescued from eternal danger, then simply I say to you, rejoice. That is the appropriate response for one who has been gifted by God in this way. See, the story of Christmas reminds us that while we're all searching for deliverance from the various things that plague our life, whether that's COVID or something else, we're looking for God to intervene in temporal ways to deliver us, and that's the right thing to do. That there's something far more dangerous that we have to be concerned about, which is the fact that God rescues us from the consequences of our sin. And if he has done that, he is the one that we need to look to for whatever type of salvation it is, ultimately, because God is the true let us pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I thank you that you're the one who ultimately rescues. And as the prophet said, there ultimately is no other Savior but you. And we put our trust in you as the one to rescue us from the temporal things that we face in this life, be that disease or health crisis, financial, mental, or emotional. We thank you for the things that man has discovered to use in this world. But Lord, our ultimate trust rest in you, that you will use the means that you've allowed man to come upon to help set us free. And sometimes you will bypass those means and you might save us in supernatural ways to rescue us from the danger 
that we face. But Lord, there's a far greater danger that's plaguing humanity, Lord, and that is the reality that the sin that we commit bring us into judgment. But we thank you for everyone in this room, God, who has seen what you have done through Jesus because you've called them into relationship with him, forgiven their sin, and put them in a right relationship with you, and that you are sustaining their faith so that it remains for all of life, so that they might enter your presence with peace and with joy. And as we reflect, as we move towards Christmas Day, and we think about the gifts under the tree, may we be extremely appreciative for that intangible gift that will rescue us for all eternity. Jesus Christ, your Son, his death and resurrection. And Lord, we thank you that it is by grace that you have done these things for us. We honor you and we praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Would you stand with us? We'll sing our final song. We'll dismiss you here in just a moment.